This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Today on CityCast Denver. The push to further regulate the use of psychedelics in Colorado continues, but at what cost? Like cannabis, there's a lot of concern about the industrialization and commodification of sacred plant medicine. Who benefits and ultimately who could lose? As investigative journalist Chris Walker discovers, it's about so much more than just money and legislation. It's about the impacts of colonization on ancestral knowledge and healing practices that just can't be franchised. Today is Monday, July 25th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Enjoy this second episode in our series about Colorado's ongoing relationship with psychedelics. Imagine a cavernous church with rows of pews and high vaulted ceilings, except instead of stained glass windows, there are brightly colored murals painted all around. And in lieu of mass, there's a guided meditation with music. Participants find spots to sit or lie down, and some have already consumed mind-altering plants. A few even call it a sacrament. With your eyes closed, being alert and awake, bring your attention to your breathing. And as they wait for the effects to kick in, the music gets more intense. Colors on the ceiling appear to move. The whole room suddenly transforms into different worlds, like a journey through time and space, a sensation only heightened by the use of lasers and light projectors. And if all of this sounds like a far out concept that could be part of a future psychedelics industry, it already exists right here in Denver. Except the plant medicine I'm talking about isn't psilocybin or any classic psychedelic. Nope, it's cannabis. And the place I just described to you is called the International Church of Cannabis. Look it up, it's a trip. But the reason I mention it here is because when it comes to lifting prohibitions on mind-altering substances and even sanctioning places to use them, we have some experience with that in Colorado. We need to talk about pot. When it comes to the future of psychedelics in Colorado and what that might look like, cannabis is really the elephant in the room. Last time, I told you about two psychedelic initiatives, each backed by different campaigns, the Grassroots Decrim Colorado and the well-funded PAC called New Approach. The two groups disagree when it comes to the proposal to create a regulated psychedelic therapy model in Colorado. And the final decision might rest with you, the voter. But one thing that both campaigns do agree on, they both want to avoid the example of legal cannabis. I heard concerns at practically every community meeting I went to while reporting this story. We don't want the commercialization to be happening as it happened with the spirit of the hemp and the cannabis. 
I want everybody to be really, really aware that this will be exactly like what happened with cannabis. But what exactly happened with cannabis? Colorado is famous for legal weed. So what's so bad about the legal weed industry? And can regulated psychedelics in Colorado look any different? For CityCast Denver, I'm Chris Walker, and this is episode two of our four-part mini-series on psychedelics, Ballot Trip. To get a better understanding of why psychedelic advocates are wary about replicating our state's experience with cannabis, I called up CityCast Denver's weed correspondent, Anne-Maria Wad. Anne-Marie hosted the Colorado Public Radio podcast On Something and has spent a lot of time reporting on the emerging cannabis industry, including its successes and, as Anne was quick to mention, its failures. Especially now at our point in history, it's like really hard to deny the fact that this is a, a super inequitable industry. There's real questions to be asked about you know, 10 years after legalizing here in Colorado, who is benefiting from this and who is losing? And it's always the same people. And who are those people? You can probably guess. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Because Anne already touched upon one of the main areas of concern for psychedelic advocates, rampant commercialization with little diversity in ownership. And to explain how the cannabis industry got that way, Anne took me on a quick trip back in time. So what happened in Colorado is we legalized 10 years ago now, wow, recreationally through what's called Amendment 64, which was a a voter-approved ballot initiative. According to Anne, there were two big things that swayed voters in this state. The first, treating cannabis as a personal freedom issue. This is almost like the libertarian approach, right? It's like, what right does the government have to tell you what to put in your body in the comfort of your own home? And the second promising to use tax revenue from cannabis sales to fund things like schools. That is the big carrot that got legalization across the finish line. But you know what wasn't in Colorado's historic weed measure at all? Anything to address the war on drugs and the marginalized communities it's disproportionately targeted. Ultimately, what voters were faced with had no language about the war on drugs, had no language about let's forgive convictions or... You know, like, let's let's fund communities that were adversely impacted by the war on drugs. Instead, Amendment 64 primarily benefited the medical pot shops that had already been running their businesses in Colorado. The big thing to know is that that wasn't necessarily an equitable industry either. Mm -hmm. And those people who owned medical businesses at the time that we legalized REC were grandfathered into REC. And so they got this first mover advantage that a lot of other businesses didn't get because it takes a long time to get a license. And so there already you kind of have the groundwork laid for this being an industry that looks broadly a certain way, serves a certain type of customer um, and focuses on certain areas of the city. Well, yeah. So let's get into that. You mentioned it looks a certain way. Well, the way that that looks is very white. Blindingly white. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And the reason for that isn't just because a bunch of medical shops got grandfathered into a recreational industry. It can also be really expensive, not to mention competitive, for any business to get licensed. In any state, it's a humongous undertaking. So here in Colorado, you have to get licensed by whatever city you're in or county or whatever, and then you have to get licensed by the state. These are both real long processes. And so already you have a process that favors folks who've got a lawyer 
and a fair amount of cash. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees sometimes to obtain a coveted dispensary or grow house license. That's why Denver is dominated by dispensary chains, huge corporations that can spread the cost and risk over several stores. And that's also what the cannabis industry looks like as a whole, corporate, largely white, and estimated to bring in a whopping $32 billion this year nationwide. At the same time, the U.S. continues to jail people for cannabis-related crimes, even if they're not crimes anymore, as is the case here in Colorado. And in all likelihood, that's exactly how a legal psychedelics industry would develop without any guardrails. Guardrails that ensure the industry is fair and accessible, that provide a clean slate for those with prior drug convictions, or even public investment for areas hit particularly hard by the war on drugs. Of course, some states are now trying to do this with cannabis, having wised up to Colorado and other early adopters' mistakes. The cannabis industry nationwide, especially in Illinois, has very little diversity. The hope is to spread the wealth by awarding new recreational use licenses to minorities. California and Massachusetts have taken on similar measures. But how effective are these programs at solving cannabis' equity and diversity problems? Are they magic bullets that we could replicate for a psychedelics industry? There was a recent report in the New Republic and the journalist wrote, three years after legalization, Illinois' state equity program has been mired in lawsuits, delays, and infighting, semicolon, not a single social equity business is open. That's usually the story. I mean, Massachusetts is really similar to, I think, the first license just opened last year. You know, we did a we did a whole story with the Boston Globe mm-hmm. where they looked into the process, too. And they found that, like, one of these problems in social equity states is you have these larger multi-state companies come in and search for black or brown applicants to front the business. And what actually happens on the back end is that they have these people sign really predatory contracts, which basically says, yes, you're the face of the business. You can go around telling people that you own this cannabis business, but really, you have to get all the product from us. We charge you a fee on every time money moves from one place to another. So you're getting into a situation where like the social equity applicants themselves, the people who are supposed to be helped by this, are just figureheads for larger corporations. Yeah, it's bad. And in Denver's case, we only got our social equity program started in mid-2021, nearly eight years after a recreational industry took root in the Mile High City. The program has done some good, awarding over a dozen social equity licenses to people who qualify if they meet one or more criteria, like qualifying as low income, or having a cannabis conviction, or a close family member with a cannabis conviction, And those applicants are now placed at the front of the line for the next five years. But because Denver's market is already so mature, newcomers find themselves competing with more than 200 well-established dispensaries, not only for customers, but also for precious, precious real estate. Because even after regulators lifted the cap on businesses, previous city rules heavily restrict weed businesses, which leaves very few areas actually open for new pot shops. In other words, social equity gets even tougher when you're having to play catch up. Well, so what's the takeaway for psychedelics advocates? Is it that even if you hear promises of these types of programs, might want to be skeptical of those promises, given how they've 
and playing out in the cannabis space? I mean, it's tough to say. It's like, I think people have really legitimate concerns. There's a real potential with psychedelics to head off a lot of what happened with cannabis. But, you know, there has to be like a real intention for that. And as I mentioned, the intention, at least, appears to be there with both of the psychedelic measures we've been talking about. Even the state-regulated program proposed by the New Approach Initiative, the one that would allow Coloradans older than 21 to legally access psilocybin services through licensed facilitators and healing centers, well, that measure has language in it that tries to avoid repeating history, like a limit on the number of healing centers that any individual or business can own. But what's to stop big businesses from finding a workaround, like they have in the cannabis industry? Because as Anne mentions, the stakes are already high. You have what, like at least 12 companies now registered on the Canadian Stock Exchange as psychedelic startups. Like they're ready to go. (laughs) They cannot wait. They cannot wait to commercialize the psychedelic space. But Anne, as well as many other psychedelic advocates, question whether commercialization is the only way to increase access to these plants. We have to ask about what, what is the bigger point of legalization? I, I think people have a right to be cautious here. If somebody's looking at psychedelics and wants to turn it into an industry, I think there's enough past precedent to really give people pause there. This could be really harmful and destructive for the communities that these substances come from. There's plenty of historical precedent for this, too. We'll learn about the most famous example, which involved a medicine woman named Maria Sabina. This episode is brought to you by Pine Melon, the farmer's market delivered. Pine Melon is a next-generation grocery delivery app that partners with over 200 farmers, ranchers, and producers in Colorado to help make fresh, locally sourced foods available to the Denver community at fair prices. Get high-quality meats, eggs, and dairy from small local farms, fresh-baked breads from local bakeries, and more, as well as all of your favorite pantry staples. Best part is, Pine Melon offers same-day delivery to Denver and soon Boulder within a two-hour window, no subscription necessary. Save time in your busy schedule and get fresh and healthy groceries delivered right to your door. Join the movement and support local today. Use promo code CityCastDenver for $75 off your first delivery at PineMelon.com. That's PineMelon.com. The year was 1955, when a New York banker and amateur mycologist named Robert Gordon Wasson appeared one day in a Mazatec village in Oaxaca, Mexico. Wasson had heard rumors about spiritual mushroom experiences in indigenous communities. And upon entering the village, he encountered Maria Sabina, a curandera who used psilocybin mushrooms as part of her healing practices. Under Wasson's false pretenses, Sabina allowed him to join a sacred mushroom ceremony, which Wasson claimed was the first instance of a foreigner being invited to participate. But despite Sabina's request for privacy, Wasson wrote a full account of his experience for Life magazine in 1957. And he, or some accounts say an editor at the magazine, even coined the term magic mushrooms. Wasson would also discover and record the ancient mystical rites of the mushrooms from a local shaman or magical priestess, Maria Sabina. And we were seeing incredible sights. That last voice was Wasson's. 
Because of his article, the general public learned about magic mushrooms for the first time. But in a follow-up book, Wasson revealed Sabina's identity and location. Her village was overrun by foreigners seeking to have their own experiences, and Sabina's fellow villagers ostracized her. By the time her house was burned down and she was banished from the village, she came to regret ever inviting Wasson to participate in the mushroom ceremony. And so the very roots of the so-called psychedelic revolution of the 1960s stemmed from a horrific extraction of indigenous knowledge. One local indigenous healer I spoke to in Colorado says this kind of experience is unfortunately familiar. Taking, extracting, and appropriating indigenous knowledge for their self-gratification. Look, there's certainly a lot of lessons we can learn from in our recent history legalizing weed. But when it comes to entheogens, that term for plants and fungi that inspire the divine within, there's a whole lot more to consider. As Katumi Castro explains, People continue to say that they're psychedelics, but they're not. So psychedelic, it's a word, a Western word that describes a made-up process in the psychic of a human. Meaning that usually a psychedelic, when you read a description, is something that you imagine, you create it, you're hallucinated, mm-hmm. and it's something that is not real. So for us, that meaning it's really, really disrespectful because for us, our medicines, uh, our medicinal plants are, are part of who we are. In our uh, cosmovision, which means the way we see life, we actually become from nature. We're nature itself. We, become, we come from the plants. Katumi worries that Colorado voters may be faced with a choice that could repeat violent history towards indigenous communities. You know, we want the medicines to be decriminalized and legal and all that, but also mm-hmm. we, we, sometimes we don't see the depth of how such things might have impact or the way it would impact communities. And Katumi has thought a lot about this, since they are a wellness coach as well as a curandero. Curandero means it's usually a healer, someone that works um, with plant medicine, that works with um, uh, medicines for healing the body, that it's in relationship to the spirit realm. So it's a form of healing, but it goes, uh, there is a lot more depth from more Western understanding of healing. Since the age of 12, Katumi has learned from the medicine ways of their indigenous elders, the Quechua Inca people, and today helps facilitate ayahuasca retreats in Ecuador. I was born in Ecuador uh, from two mestizo parents. Mestizo means that they hold indigeneity from the region and also white European. And I like to say this, I'm an indigenous person. I don't speak for all indigenous, but I speak as, as one of them. But even though Katumi can't speak for everyone, we have a very common felt sense of what it is to be indigenous in this world, you know. And Katumi says their indigenous ancestors opened up ayahuasca ceremonies to visitors from other countries starting in the 1970s. That's created a kind of economy within itself, and the results have been mixed. So it's only been really open for the last 50 years to foreigners. And in the same way, there's really beautiful people approaching the medicine with a lot of humbleness and really respecting and really learning and sharing the the healing that comes through our cultural practices, there's also a lot of appropriation, a lot of colonization, a lot of extraction uh, that is affecting us. And unfortunately, when it comes to the topic of plant and fungi medicines, Katumi says another common experience is to have people seek out indigenous expertise, but rarely respect indigenous opinions. 
at the end of the day, I never really know how people are going to use my teachings and what I, what I share that actually might get tokenized. Might get tokenized. The tokenization happens when people want something again from me, and there is not a previous relationship or an interest to get to know me as a human. But like I've moved to that place where I'm like, okay, you're tokenizing me, and yet I'm doing this for the greater goodness of my community, of people around, people of color. Like my desire, my prayer is that violence towards people of color, especially indigenous people, decreases over time. You know, so I'm in service. You know, yeah. so I'm doing this for the next generations. Well, thank you for mm-hmm. being in service that way. We're at a point here in Colorado where there might be some pretty consequential measures on this year's statewide ballot. Because these are such consequential decisions, what do you think people need to know? I think the first thing is don't buy everything you hear from people that are representing these medicines, not from an ancestral lineage or culture, uh, but rather from um, yeah, uh, capitalistic, systemic um, experience, I would say. And that, that includes people of color. You know, there's a lot of people of color. There's a lot of siblings that I would call them siblings that are actually causing a lot of harm, you know, mm. um, that they unconsciously are approaching these from a colonial mindset, you know. So one of the biggest pieces around these initiatives is that they're moving too fast. Uh, so that will be my first thing is like, first, please slow down. You know, if if you're hearing, if you've been pushed to get signatures, slow down, talk to people, find out before you give a signature, you know, find out what's really happening. And Katumi mentioned a second thing. Uh, the second piece is like really understanding that in these movements, we really need to centralize indigenous voices, uh, people of color, and, you know, especially elders. And that means not just inviting them to the table for their expertise, but their opinion, too. Katumi says we need real processes of reciprocity. Reciprocity means that it's dual, that it's happening both ways. And it's not happening both ways right now. The reason we're speaking and the reason I'm speaking here and the reason you'll see more people of color and see more indigenous people stepping into these spaces is because we're impacted so badly that we're coming out of like, hey, we need to stop this. And we're putting ourselves in the line. So it's not reciprocity. It's actually we're being put on the corner. But they have hope that things won't always be this way. There's a lot of people who are awakening to their spirituality, which is beautiful. But when Katumi reflects on campaigns to increase access to plant medicines, they have a warning. If you don't work through your colonial mindset, you will continue to harm people even when you feel that you're doing a spiritual service to someone. Think back to that story of R. Gordon Wasson and Maria Sabina for just a second. Wasson lied to gain access to mushrooms in the sacred ceremony they were a part of. Then he went back home and exposed the ceremony in Life magazine. That's the kind of colonial mindset Katumi is referring to. Dropping into the indigenous world, taking as you please, and leaving without care for the consequences of that taking. In other words, repeating history. And to avoid that, Katumi asks that we all decolonize. And if you don't know how to do the work, reach out to people who do decolonial work, decolonization. There's so many experts out there right now. 
We'll include some of Katumi's recommendations in this episode's show notes. So that's the history to consider around these two possible ballot initiatives, the recent history and the not so recent. Both initiatives would decriminalize a handful of plant and fungi medicines, but only one, the New Approach Initiative, would set the stage for a regulated therapeutic model. And in order to get an idea of what that might look like, next episode, we'll start by examining a psilocybin measure being implemented in Oregon. So it's a very difficult balancing act, basically. As well as meeting the man behind an activist company many of you may recognize. How did you and Dr. Bronner's The Company get interested in psychedelics advocacy? Yeah, well, um, I guess uh, I guess my big initiation was after college. I was in Amsterdam in 1995. That's coming up next week on episode three of our miniseries, Ballot Trip. Here's what else Denverites are talking about. Mushrooms. Looks like one of the two ballot measures Chris talked about in last week's episode on psychedelics has collected enough signatures to go to the voters. According to the Denver Post, Initiative 58, the Natural Medicine Health Act, would legalize psychedelics statewide and open the door for the creation of healing centers for use of psychedelics, along with building a state-supported framework for the industrialization of plant medicines like psilocybin. Oh, and P.S. Initiative 58 is the one backed by corporate PAC money. Initiative 61, the competing community-led measure seeking decriminalization of psychedelics, has until August 8th to submit enough valid signatures to get to the ballot as well. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. We hope you enjoyed this second episode of Ballot Trip. Check out last week's installment and stay tuned for more. Support for the reporting in the series comes from the Ferris UC Berkeley Psychedelic Reporting Fellowship. Additional music is by Loyalty Freak Music. Story editing on this series is done by Anne Maria Wad. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. See ya! And here's what else Denverites are talking about. Mushrooms!